Welcome to the Secular Dharma Foundation podcast. These episodes are available at no cost on multiple streaming services. The podcast is intended to provide an open dialogue inviting a wide range of perspectives to subjects related to secular issues that align with our mission. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. Well, this is Dave Smith, the Secular Dharma Foundation. I'm here with my old friend, Anne Gleig. Hi, Anne. It's great to be with you this morning. Hi, Dave. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, you're welcome. It's good to have somebody with your knowledge and background. So I want to talk about your background, but we are going to talk about your American Dharma book, which I think is a fabulous book. But because you're, we don't uh, interview a lot of academics, and you're, you're a very unique person, a very unique <laughs> location in the Buddhist world, if you even consider yourself part of that. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background in Buddhism and academia, and how did you come to merge these worlds? Sure, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I grew up Catholic, um, but I, you know, as a teenager, kind of realized I was gay, um, and there's not much room in Catholicism, certainly not at that time, you know, in the 1980s for a, for a gay kid. Um, but I was always really interested in kind of religious, kind of existential, you know, spiritual questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during my teenage years, I kind of, you know, started to read various books that were, you know, either indirectly or directly kind of engaging Asian religion, philosophy and meditation. Read all of like the beat books, you know, that refer to Buddhism, you know, the Dharma Bums, books like that, Krishnamurti, Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, and I was just really had a big appetite to learn about Asian religions. So when I was 18, um, you know, it was time for me to go to university. So I decided, well, you know, it really would make sense for me to go and study uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, you know, in a more rigorous way. So I think, you know, I just had the sense that I was getting a kind of a picture of Buddhism and Hinduism from these texts, but I didn't really have the full picture. So I went to Bristol University in 1992. You know, at that time, there were two big scholars of Buddhism, Rupert Gethin and Paul Williams. Oh, my God, Um, you studied with Rupert Gethin. Yeah, I I did not know that because I actually have his book on my desk here. Not to digress, but that's amazing. The Buddhist Path to Awakening, which is his PhD thesis on the the seven Bodhijangas. But that that's amazing. He's he's one of my favorite Buddhist academics. What was it like to because that's like going right to the top of the food chain? What was it like to study with Rupert? Yeah, Rupert was really fantastic. You know, I I remember him really like fondly, both intellectually, obviously he's, you know, and in, he's brilliant. Um but he was also really kind. You know, I I went to Bristol University. It's very posh southern university and I'm from a working class northern background. So, it was a struggle for me to be in that space, but Rupert kind of took me under his wing and you know, I learned a lot from him. He's, you know, someone I admire and respect a lot. Big time, me too. Mm. So, yeah, so that was, you know, the start of my journey as an academic uh, in Buddhist studies. And then, you know, really from that time, you know, I've, you know, continued both practicing Buddhism and studying Buddhism, you know, sometimes it breaks, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the, in that time. But, 
you know, now it's been almost, you know, I'm 50 next month. So in a couple of months. Um, so yeah, it's been, you know, looking back, I realized, wow, 35 years of like study and practice of Buddhism. Do you have a particular school or like, because Buddhism is a big thing. Yeah. Do you have a particular, <laughs> in Rupert, I would imagine it, it, it's his, most most of his work I know is correlated to the polytexts. Yeah. Do you have a, you have a, a system or a school or a yeah. lineage that you feel like you're most closely related to? And what is that? Yeah. So, you know, when I first started practicing as a teenager, you know, it was, let's see, the 19, early, late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, there wasn't that much Buddhism around in the UK. So essentially, you know, I just go to whatever Buddhist group there, there was, you know, if I was in a city with a Buddhist group, it was um, two, two big ones at that time were the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, Triratna. Triratna, yeah. Um, I also attended classes at the Nukadampa tradition, which is yeah. a very controversial lineage. But, you know, as a teenager, I, I didn't, you know, especially also prior to university study, I didn't really know about the differences. You know, it was just like all Buddhism to me. Um, but as a, you know, as I kind of, you know, grew up and got a bit more knowledge, the two lineages that I've most practiced in are the insight tradition um and also the tibetan tradition and the community that i've practiced in really you know since i came to the united states in 2004 so like 20 years now uh is door mountain in houston texas it's a oh. tibetan Nyingma tradition um and the teachers the immediate teachers there are Anne klein um and harvey aronson um they Anne klein's an academic she's actually a professor at rice university so I went to Rice University to do my PhD um, uh, and Harvey Aronson is a psychotherapist as okay. well as a Buddhist teacher. So that song is, you know, it has uh, Tibetan lamas. One of the lamas is Adsom, uh, Rim, Rim, Adsom Rinpoche, who actually is still in Eastern T Tibet. He's a really big figure in Eastern Tibet. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting Sangha because it has a very, you know, a traditional lineage of a, of a, of a Lama who's still in Tibet. Um, but it also has Anna and Harvey who have, who are academics as well as Buddhist teachers. And Harvey's also a psychotherapist. Yeah. So you've got like a mix of intellectual Buddhism, psychotherapy and very traditional Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so I feel like I've been really fortunate to be in a community that has that kind of multiplicity. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's a lot of what, you know, the Secular Dharma Foundation is kind of a marriage of these worlds. And, and whether it's, it's inside or Tibetan even, it seems to be part of American Dharma is there is, you know, a crossover clearly between the Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist psychology and therapy and Western educated thought. And when you talk about Buddhism beyond modernity, uh, I know that the... It, for me, the, the the concept of secularity is not explicitly mentioned in that book, but the theme of it seems to run really deep through that. So I'm just wondering, how do you hold a, a secular dharma or how do you, does that word bother you? How, how does that fit into your thoughts on all this stuff? Yeah, well, I actually do cover secular dharma. Okay, so my book came out in 2019. So I, you know, I'm working on a new project now. So I was like, I need to look up my book before our podcast. To re <laughs> I remember, just did the same. remember what I wrote because it's it's a bit of a monster. The book, there's a lot in it, as you yeah. know. You know, really, each chapter could be its own book. Um, right on the penultimate 
chapter, the one before the conclusion that you you know might not have got there yet, is my section on uh, Buddhism, secular Buddhism. So essentially, what I look at in the book, it's right at the end. It's like page two hundred and sixty-six. Is um, I look at you know the kind of uh, development of the the terms, the term, and the community and the network of secular Buddhism. Um, so I start with um, Stephen Batchelor, you know, who many people think of immediately when one mentions. Totally, yeah. He Buddhism. was the first first person we interviewed, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, he's you know he's just such an eloquent speaker. I bet you that's a great interview. Um, so I look at his work, and then I look at Winston Higgins, who's an yeah. Australian academic and secular Buddhist person who's been quite influential. And then I look at the Secular Buddhist Association. It's one secular Buddhist group in the US. And, you know, I basically raise this question of how do we understand secularization in relationship to modernity? So, you know, many sociologists think of secularism as, you know, completely kind of um, integral to modernity. Um, others think of it as a kind of hyper-modernity. You know, secularism certainly grows out of modernity as a cultural movement, um, but not all modernists are secular. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, all secular identified people are, you know, modern. I mean, it's yeah. rooted in this kind of modern consciousness. That often, so is, can we say, you know, and maybe this is a sloppy way to say it, but it, it, is there secularity and modernity is there a synonymous relationship between those two terms for you um i would say there's an overlap i wouldn't cool. necessarily say they're synonymous just because i think that um i think that well for example in the book in terms of secular buddhism in the book um stephen bachelor and winston higgins discriminate they differentiate between secular buddhism and modern buddhism okay and the way they differentiate is essentially they say look modern buddhism is is not modern enough essentially they say mm -hmm. it's still this kind of hybrid mix of the modern and the traditional so they want to say that secular buddhism is a kind of either even more radical form of modernity so I would say that secular Buddhism is, maybe I'd say that, that it's a kind of radical kind of expression of modernity, mm -hmm. um, that it goes further in a way than, than, than many modernists might be, you know, comfortable with. Yeah, it's interesting um, how time flies. It must be hard to write a book because, you know, in five years from now, we're even using the term, and even Stephen's using the term secular dharma now, which is the part of our foundation. So it's just interesting how... Now that I'm reminded uh, about that, um, you know, this has been a kind of moving process with that. And, and one of the things that I push back against on my, because I have a lot of Buddhist teacher friends, and I, I actually don't consider myself a Buddhist, but I feel like I'm a friend to Buddhism. That's how I feel. Buddhist. Buddhist, exactly. <laughs> but I, 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 the reason I try to uh, stand and, and try to be willing to have these kind of wonky conversations is that. I think that people associate secularity in a negative tone. Like people seem to have a negative attitude or Buddhism, American mm. Buddhism in particular, people that I know, they tend to have a negative reaction to the term. Do you find that at all to be the case? Yeah, I think that is the case. I mean, certainly also in academia, secularism is is generally, you know, treated really critically. 
Um, why is that? So essentially, it's really related to colonialism and racism. So I think there's a, you know, actually, I've, I've got a, there's a book coming out. I'm an editor with Scott Mitchell uh, called The Oxford Handbook of American Buddhism. Nice. And there's a chapter on secular Buddhism by Kin Chung, a colleague and friend. And essentially, Kin shows how secularism uh, becomes racialized as, you know, basically white people are like more evolved and superior than traditional Asian people. So I think that the, the critique is that secularity becomes racialized. It basically, so this is a really interesting question, you know, to think about, like, how do you see the relationship between secular Buddhism and traditional Buddhism? So the problem with, you know, some iterations of secular Buddhism or just secular thought is that it positions itself in a hostile relationship to the traditional and a hierarchical relationship. And, you know, essentially it's like, you know, traditional people, you know, are kind of superstitious, not like not fully developed enough. And, you know, secularity is this kind of evolutionary advance. But then it kind of maps traditional with Asian people or Asian American. So the traditional becomes racialized and secularity becomes like a kind of sign of like white superiority. So I think some of the discomfort or, you know, outright critique is really related to this, you know, racial aspect. That's so, interesting because I, I don't I don't see it that way. Yeah, it's, it's right. part of secularity is it's a very complicated word depending on who you ask. Yeah, you know. So for me, like I, I a couple of things that I like. There's a guy named George Holyoke who wrote amazing papers in the 1800s on secularity, and even like the Dalai Lama's book Beyond Religion: Secular Ethics. It, yeah. it's, to me, the whole spirit of secularity is actually tolerance. You know, and and it's really trying to have a tolerant, open perspective on on welcoming all ideas and all opinions, and not not taking a hardline thing. So for us, secularity really is about open dialogue. Um, it's about um, you know, this kind of three pillars we talk about it is that uh, secularity. Is, it, the goal of secularity is to improve the life for everybody on the planet. Um, and if we're going to trust anything, if we're going to put stock in anything, it should probably be science. And um, and it's good to do good. So there, there's a level of giving back, of generosity. So it's interesting that you coming from the academic world. Uh, it'd be interesting. And I, we've been talking about this. It'd be interesting to just have a conference on secularity because everybody I've talked to, everybody has a, a different, and you, you're really, really well-educated and you work in this world, a very different perspective and opinion on what it is, which I think is part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that is part of the problem, as you say, that often people are operating with different notions of what the secular is. And there's actually a really interesting research project being done on, like, secularity in non-Western contexts, which is looking at, like, can we talk about multiple secularities? Can we look at secularities that are doing more liberatory work? So I do think, you know, context is really important, you know, looking at kind of, you know, discourses in their specific context and thinking about how do they do they become racialized or are are the ways that they're working in, you know, more liberatory ways. So I think you're right. We, you know, the time is ripe for, you know, more sustained thinking across, you know, communities on 
you know, the notion of the secular and the ways that secularity works in different racialized contexts. Yeah. And one thing that I think is important and people, Buddhists tend to be kind of conflict avoidant, as I'm sure you've gathered, is that, <laughs> many, is, many. That, yeah, is that actually there should be a healthy level of tension, I think, in the conversation on secularity, uh, a, a kind of friendly argument, if you will, of like not the, the goal is to not get everybody on the same page. But I think the goal is kindness and openness and friendliness and trying to to explore ideas without trying to pin anything down, which makes it hard because it's a moving target. And one of the things that I noticed working in the South, when we, you and I first met, I was living in Nashville and um, I was teaching Buddhist meditation and, and mindfulness and all these different things and, and a lot of very Catholic and a lot of very Christian contexts. And I remember working with an Episcopalian priest because I was teaching, he invited me to teach Buddhist meditation practices at like a a Christian recovery camp in Alabama, which I was like, I don't know, man, that sounds crazy. <laughs> and I and I said, well, I said, it shouldn't be a problem because a lot, I said, really, what a lot of this stuff is really secular anyway. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, he said, it's better to say Buddhism than, than secular because Southern culture, uh, secularity, they, they equate that to more like to Satanism which I thought yeah. was very interesting because there, there is a lot of, and I think this is a problem, but a lot of people think secularism is anti-religious. Yeah, that's so true, actually, because I think I told you before that I spent two years, I've actually always lived in the American South. I've been yeah. in the U.S. for 20 years. I lived in Texas, Mississippi, and Florida. Um, so my experience, you know, is often different than colleagues who work on the coasts, you know, totally. in different you know, it's and, basically another country. You live in a, you, America is very different, as you obviously know. It's like yeah, wild. it it is really distinct. And I remember teaching in Mississippi, and you know the culture is heavily Christian evangelical. And we had a student who identified strongly, a female student who identified strongly as an atheist and a secularist. And for her, it was really liberty because it was freedom from the kind of really rigid, you know, right-wing kind of Christianity that she'd been kind of, you know, subject, regulated police to. So in that context, the secular was doing quite radical work, you know, because, you know, Christian evangelicals are, again, a broad movement, but the more like right-wing ones, you know, see secular culture as a threat to totally. Christianity, uh, to America as a Christian nation. So I think, again, that's what I'm saying. Like, I do think it's important to look at secularity in in specific context to get a sense of what work is it doing? Is it is it is it doing harm to racial minorities or actually is it challenging religious nationalism? So they're very different. That's two very different movements, I think, that the secular can do. And so, again, I think it's, you know, I, also I'm an academic, so that's what we always say, right? Yeah, it's right. <laughs> to look at in context. Yeah. But I do, I do think that, you know, I do actually believe that's true, not just saying it. Yeah, no, I do too. And I, and I think we've even gotten away from, like, we, 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 we and I, I want to talk about this too, because it, it plays into your book, but like, I uh, always felt comfortable as a Buddhist. And then I kind of was uncomfortable with the secular Buddhism. I really was just trying, how do we dump the B word, actually? Not in a bad way, but just like, because I, I think it's actually a little bit uncool to try to secularize Buddhism. Like, I don't want to touch Buddhism, actually. I, I have no problem with it. I think we should leave it alone. And even Stephen now, too, like, we, 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 we specifically 
uh, called our organization Secular Dharma Foundation because to us that's really the secularization of it. It's the Dharma, not the Buddhism. And I thought it was interesting. And I think there was a funny story to this, and maybe you can unpack it. The title of your book, American Dharma. Did you actually struggle? Why is it American Dharma and not American Buddhism? Well, that's, <laughs> that's the title of the book is an interesting story. So essentially, it's Yale. The press always chooses the type title of the book for you i mean there is a little dialogue but essentially they have the final say sure so essentially i actually wanted to call the book the i actually wanted to call the book the subtitle more or less but it wasn't because for me the the content of the book is contained in the subtitle buddhism beyond modernity sure and um, but when they're selling a book they thinking about things like people doing a search like american buddhism um, so essentially, they more or less chose American Dharma, and I got my, you know, academic subtitle in. Um, but it's quite interesting in a way because some people have some people have critiqued the title. Um, so I think the main critique is because. So it's kind of also related to race. A lot of what we talk about when we talk about American Buddhism is related to race. And essentially, because as you know, in my book, I, you know, don't give an entire picture of, of Buddhism in America or American Buddhism. I look closely at these, you know, majority white lineages. I call them meditation based convert lineages. Mm -hmm. um, and so some people were upset that, you know, I was claiming that was American, that the book suggests that that's really American Dharma. Like white Buddhism, historically yeah. white Buddhism is American Dharma, which of course, you know, totally excludes Asian American Buddhists who actually make up two thirds of Buddhists and are the oldest form of Buddhism today, what we call Asian American heritage communities. Um, so I always, you know, I always like to point that out that I'm not claiming that. Um, but I think the, well, what did you think of the title? Did it do work? For I was you? very did happy it? with it. Yeah. I was like, yes. <laughs> Because I'm a Dharma, I'm a Dharma, I'm yeah. a Dharma person. At the end of the day, and I I really mm -hmm. liked it because it was um, well for me it was attractive. Like you know, the Yale people were right. You know what I mean? I, I of course I I know you, so I'm cheating a little bit because I was going to get the book whether whether you it didn't matter. I mean, what you I interviewed it. you for the book, I right? I interviewed you, so you. I, I, mean, I, I was going to buy it anyway. You had me, <laughs> but I was happy with the title because. And, and let me ask you this question because this is just interesting. Like. As an academic, how would you make a distinction? What is Buddhism versus Dharma? Like, how would you make a distinction between those two ideas? Well, I'm actually really kind of sorry that you asked me that question because I wanted to ask you that question. Well, you go first. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'll go first an, if you want. Well, I would say, you know, as an academic, um, you know, where our approach is, you know, cr critical historical. So we as academics kind of trace you know, the usage of a word. Um, and so the Dharma, as you know, refers to the, historically, refers to the teachings of the Buddha. So Dharma actually precedes the word Buddhism. Big time, you know, by thousands, like, by quite a long yeah. time. And, you know, Buddhism is, you know, a kind of construct in a way. It's, you know, it's used to denote a major world religion. But the term arises with the development of the study of religions. You know, it's the same with, you know, Hinduism. Hinduism is, you know, if you go to the early, what we now call the early Hindus, 
you know, scriptures, they don't refer to themselves as Hindus. It's exactly. Vedic religion. That's so right. essentially, you've got these terms that refer to the major world religions that come much later. So many people, you know, many academics like to point out, well, Buddhism, you know, is a is an academic category more than a, you know, on the ground category. And Dharma precedes Buddhism. Um, but I think that, like, as an academic, we would like trace, well, now in the contempt, you know, because I work on contemporary Buddhism, I would say, well, now I'm interested in how practitioners themselves make those type of choices. Like, so I would ask you, well, you know, how would you see the difference between these two terms? And then I would record your answer. I'd ask a lot of people and then I'd present my data. So I might say, you know, for example, commonly, you know, in the research populations that I study, historically white lineages that have now become more, you know, thankfully racially diversified, often they use, they use, they distinguish between Buddhism as like the institutional side of the religion or as the historic, you know, they, they actually conflate the term with the history of, you know, the different lineages uh, across Asia. But then they say, but the Dharma is like the heart of the tradition. So sure. they often talk about Dharma as a kind of experience that's somehow prior uh, and detachable from the kind of historic tradition. So I think how that's that's mostly what we find when we interview. That's mostly what I find, and in my current project as well, working with Amy Langenberg on sexual abuse and misconduct. We find mm -hmm. that that practitioners do like to make this distinction between Buddhism's, Buddhism's the institutional side, and it's normally the negative side. Like when things go wrong, it's because, oh, that's Buddhism. But yeah, there's yeah, really yeah. the heart, which is Dharma, which is transcendent. Yeah. So that's kind of what we find for our definition. What What's your definition? Let's see if you, if, if I, well, if you're... If I am right, if I'm kind of faithfully capturing it. I, I like what you're saying. I, I think that, you know, first of all, as, as a white cisgendered male, I'm very aware of a lot of this stuff in my location and these things, and I take it very seriously. Um, and so for me, uh, interestingly enough, when I learned the Dharma at Insight Meditation Society, I actually sat probably four or five Dharma retreats at the positive retreats. I didn't even know what we were practicing was Buddhism. Wow. I didn't know that Dharma and Buddha, then I was 19 years old. I didn't know any better. Yeah. I just started, I just kept hearing this word Dharma that meant so much to me. Then later on, I was like, oh, this is, I was like, well, what's the difference? And so for me, Buddhism can be reduced. It can be academically studied. It can be, it, there's different traditions and there's different schools and there's different orthodoxies and there's, it can be deconstructed in exhaustive ways. The Dharma really can't be deconstructed. And so when I, I'm also a traditionalist in the sense that when I talk about the Dharma, I am, I'll also make a clear distinction that when we talk about the Dharma, we're talking about the discourses of the Pali Canon. Okay, so you, are, yeah, so you keep really close to the words of the Buddha, the teachings yeah. of the Buddha. As so for me, anything post-Pali canonical is in yeah. many ways Buddhism. Because what happens is the Dharma goes, and you know this, right? Every time the Dharma goes to, the Dharma goes from Northern India to China, and it becomes Chan Buddhism. And then it the Dharma goes to Japan and becomes Zen. And then it goes, so every time and this is a sociological perspective on it, but it's been well documented. When the Dharma goes to a new place, the Dharma affects the culture and the culture of that place affects the Dharma. And when yeah. that kind of stirring pot happens, what comes out is Buddhism. Yeah. 
And so for me, you know, I'm not saying, you know, of course I do. I'm obsessed with the polycanon. I'm not saying it's the best and it's the only and it's what we should pay attention to. But it is the oldest record of what we have. So Yeah, it's the oldest surviving record of early Buddhism. Yeah. So when I when I talk about the Dharma, that that's where I'm kind of coming from is that early tradition, which actually I run and, and even the word secular Dharma is almost a bit clumsy because uh, I believe the Buddha of the Pali Canon, Siddhartha Gautama, was a secular person. You know, I, right. I think he lives in a secular world. He he was he was I think I think most of his ideas, if bringing them forward into the world that we live in now, which is another way to talk about what secular is. Secular is the world in which we inhabit right now. We could almost define it as the present moment, which is an interesting way to think about it. And so I think yeah, the- I mean that's kind of similar to how Stephen Batchelor defines it, and. Stephen Batchelor also makes that kind of argument, right, that the Buddha was a kind of early secularist. But that's a very contentious claim. You know, scholars wouldn't accept it. You know, we as as a scholarly community, you know, we would, you know, say, no, that's actually projecting, you know, a present understanding back onto the past. So it's it's you know, it's out there that claim but it, it's it's content it's certainly contentious it is you know and you, I, you yeah and i think yeah. it's healthily contentious because i think uh, i um and it, it, of course in america this is part of the big problem i i really value a, a container or a place where we can actually come come where we can have conversations about these things in a way that's friendly without without yeah. for, so for me like the goal is, is for the dialogue to never end yeah well I think a lot of Buddhists love to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that's true. That's I'm sure true. you can have never yeah. ended. Yeah. I mean, I think for me as a religious studies scholar, you know, I've got a very different ap- approach. So, you know, I, you know, in a way, the argument that you're making or your, you know, where, where you're, com- where you found your own kind of place in, you know, in this world is um, that you are you you you're, you're you prioritize origins. So sometimes in religious studies we call this the um, we name this position as a kind of the metaphysics of origins. Okay. And essentially, if you hold that position, you you basically say, let's go back to the earliest iteration of a religion, and we want to prioritize that as the kind of truth as the real as the essential religion and then it a metaphysics of origins tends to be um connected to a narrative of historical decline so there's this sense that you know it started off really great you know uh-huh. jesus, whether it's jesus or the buddha and then you know the message slowly like deteriorates through history um but you're a bit different because your metaphysics of origins you know is kind of also kind of saying, no, but it's a secularist origin, which, you know, historically, you know, we couldn't, we literally, you can't support that with scholarship. Yeah. Um, But, you know, again, we're here to have a conversation. I'm not here to, you know, kind of scold you or anything. But I'm, I'm just kind of saying that, you know, that position is recognizable. I think for a lot of people, though, when they talk about when they separate Buddhism and Dharma, they're doing something different than you, right? They're not saying Dharma. They're not using Dharma to refer to the, you know, the the Pali Canon, the teachings of the Buddha. They're talking. They're using it more in the way, 
like an analogy would be people who say they're spiritual but not religious. So when people say, often when people say they're spiritual but not religious, they want to separate a kind of essence of religion from the kind of scaffolding of religion, right? And I think a lot of, I've noticed that for us, you know, in my research with Amy and, you know, my research before that, I noticed that a lot of contemporary Buddhists use Dharma in that way. They want to use, they might be Tibetan Buddhists, for example, they might be Zen Buddhists, but they want to, they want to draw out something that's separate from a tradition, but that kind of animates that tradition, that's the heart of that tradition. So I think for a lot of people, Dharma as a term kind of does that work. And I think it also is a way to deal with problems in Buddhist, yeah. in Buddha Dharma communities. Sure. You know, so for example, you know, when we're doing this work on sexual abuse, a lot of people use Dharma as a way to rescue what they feel is still good about the practice and the tradition and the community in the face of, you know, abuses of power. Totally, I see that, yeah. You know, the so thing about it too is that for me, the Dharma is the universal concept that resides in all Buddhist thought. Yeah. Okay. So you are actually, you are, you, you, you do have a bit of that meaning. So, I do. Right, so I do. And also, I'll say this too, which is yeah. I'll make myself even more complicated than I than I am. I actually hold the spiritual. I actually feel like I have a religious relationship to the word Dharma, much more so than spiritual. I actually, and this is taking me a long time to get there. I feel more comfortable as holding the Dharma in a religious context than I do as a spiritual context. I don't really like the word spirituality, frankly. Yeah, why don't you like the word spirituality too flaky or too? Yeah, it's too. It doesn't. It doesn't have any teeth for me. Yeah, you know, it's, it's basically it basically says I'm other. I always feel like people who come with the spiritual, they're saying, "Well, I'm not part of anything. I do my own thing," which is fine. But for me, like I also am very inspired by the work of Paul Tillich. You know, the, the oh Christian, yeah, I love. Yeah, he's a great theologian. Yeah, and so I, his, his idea that that religion is what is what is my ultimate concern and from a dharma practitioner perspective my ultimate concern is really suffering and the suffering of myself and the suffering of other people and what can i do to mitigate that to me is a religious calling and to me that's really what the heart of the dharma is so so as much as that's why i like these conversations because it's like you know in some ways i want to be a paradox to myself because i think that you know in in, in my the reason i like secularity that should be able to the container of secularity should be able to hold everything in, in a perfect world yeah, yeah. Look, we need that. We need better secularities, definitely. You know, I think about, you know, France is a, a secular state, but the France does not hold everything. You know, it's no, you know very don't. Islamophobic, and yeah. so I think you know it's like again as we're as we're having this conversation, you know, your ideal of secularity that you're, you know, you're talking about secularity as this kind of inspiring ideal, but someone else might be thinking of you know, the way the French do secularity, which is really different. Yeah. And so you can see then if you were having this conversation with them, you'd be really banging heads because yeah, yeah, your notion time. of the secular is so different. So I do think there's real value in drawing out the meaning. And as you say, as you start to draw it out, you realize yourself, wow, there's actually a lot of layers here that I, I also need to get more clarity on. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the convo too. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it, 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 so many different ways to come at it. The other thing about um, 
There's so much. I feel like we could go on and on and on, and we probably will. <laughs> I do want to talk about this word, and I'm curious to see where you come at. Part of my position, and part of the reason why I work with Stephen and I like Stephen Batcher's idea, is this uh, his re, re, reinterpretation of the Four Noble Truths. And I know that you have a book on dukkha and suffering and so forth in, in the book. Uh, what is your understanding of this word dukkha? And Buddhism, this is this is just Buddhism seems to be trying to put an end to it. Um, what well, what is your what is your I know you, I know you talk about a little bit about in the book, but how do you hold that concept? What does that word mean for you? How do you define this idea? I mean, I'm noticing. You know, you're asking like, how do I? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I as a scholar, you know, yeah, my yeah, approach yeah. is always like. You know, so I think you know I could answer that as a scholar and as a, pra- but also separately as a practitioner. But as a scholar, our job is really to look at not like what do I think, but right. how how historically have Buddhists understood dukkha? Sure. So you know, I would go to the classical iteration of you know dukkha as you know kind of suffering, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha as impermanence. And dukkha is no self, right? Dukkha, anicca, and anatta. Sure. You know, that to me is how Buddhism clearly articulates what dukkha is. But then, you know, I because I work in the contemporary age, you know, I'm interested, okay, well, where have contemporary Buddhists gone with that? So Stephen is one example, right? He gives a kind of re-articulation of how he thinks about dukkha which is, you know, rooted in the tradition, but is also a departure from the tradition. And another group that I would look at, for example, are Buddhists of colour. So, you know, one kind of big contribution that Buddhists of colour have made is really to think about dukkha on a collective layer. And, you know, you know so in contemporary racial justice work, because, you know, that's another focus of my research, you know, they like to talk about collective dukkha which is the manifestation, the articulation of dukkha um, on a collective level. So like as a racialized group, as a racialized community, um, how do, for example, African-Americans experience dukkha? And they'll say there's a distinct way of of thinking about dukkha collectively. Very interesting. You know, which is really interesting, right? But they kind of do it, excuse me, they're doing kind of similar work it's distinct, but also similar structurally to what Stephen's doing. They're asking, how can we think about dukkha in our social location, in our historic location? And that that's really interesting because that's also inspired scholars to say, okay, well, let's go back to the canon of traditional Buddhism and let's think about whether we've missed some strands in the canon that actually support this contemporary articulation of of dukkha as collective or collective karma, which is another, you know, kind of contemporary hermeneutic and racial justice. So I just want to give a shout out to one of my colleagues called Joy Brennan. She works on Yogacara, which is, you know, a, a Buddhist, a Mahayana Buddhist philosophy. And she basically, she's got a piece in Lion's Raw, so, you know, that's open access. And she basically says, look, if we actually look at Yogacara, there are actual strands in Yogacara that support a kind of uh, interpretation of karma as collective. And then we can put that in conversation 
with contemporary articulations of collective dukkha and collective karma. So essentially, you know, my approach is just really, I'm really interested in tracking the way different communities articulate foundational Buddhist teachings in ways that speak to their present social location. See, that's very exciting to me. You know, that's very exciting to me. And I'd love to talk to somebody about this because I, I think the Dukkha conversation is, 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 is maybe the most fascinating one in entire Buddhist thought. And, you know, and also too, the, the tradition and I come from the inside people, the Theravada people like, you know, like I, when I talk to people about the reinterpret, I'm like, Hey, Dukkha doesn't actually come to an end. It's the reactivity that needs to, people, people get their hackles up. People are like, Whoa, Whoa, you can't say that. That's, <laughs> That's total heresy, you know. It's like, which is probably why I'm I'm not as popular as I'd like to be, perhaps. But I think it's I think it's a really interesting thing, and I find it to be fascinating. I'd love to talk to somebody about this who are holding it in this different context because I think Stephen's big position is is that we're not trying to end it; we're trying to embrace it. So, from right. a racial justice point of view, I would look at it like, okay, you know, you see the bumper sticker "End Racism." Of course, I'm totally all in favor of that. Uh, end climate change. I think there's lots of things I'm in favor of ending. But I feel like you can't end something or even move towards ending something until you've embraced it, until you've acknowledged it, until you've felt the pain of it, until you've really felt into the humanity of this reality of, of, of a lot of different things in our society and our culture. Because what happens, I find, is the idea that we're going to end it has so much aversion built into it that it creates a kind of denial or not wanting to deal with it. And isn't it just convenient to want to be free from it or to want it to go away? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot in what you say. You know, you can I think you know. Essentially, at the end, you point into what is the relationship between people's kind of like psychological kind of tendencies and these kind of spiritual ideals. So, you know, if you're someone who is, you know, conflict avoidant, you know, perhaps you will find like this idea of you know complete liberation really attractive you know totally. as a, you know it might i mean we i think the term most people use these days is spiritual bypassing right how certain spiritual ideals or practices can be used like in service of you know psychological kind of defenses Definitely. you know so you're saying you know like we need to embrace things in a way you're saying you know, we can't like skip to transcendence. That, that's what I'm hearing from you. You know, we can't like just skip from where we're at to transcendence. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. I think that's a big problem in, 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 the, in the meditation space. Yeah, well, I think it is. And I think, you know, you can think of it in t- on two levels. You can think it of it on a kind of, you know, psychological level where people just use it, you know, you know as a way to avoid conflict or, you know, really engage in an interpersonal vulnerability. But you can also think of it on the political level, right, where people are like adverse to, you know, social justice conversations because they think, oh, that's really like messy and there's a lot of anger there. So I think that, you know, I think there's really, you know, a common message in what you're saying and also what, you know, Buddhists for social justice and racial justice particularly are saying, where they're like, we have to like look reality in the face, and one, when we look reality in the face, we see conflict, we see racism, we see sexism, you know, and there's a way that we have to include that in the practice. So I think there's a kind of, you know, there's a way that you, you know, do overlap there. 
And I would, you know, just really encourage you to invite, you know, someone like Rima Vasily Flood. I would love just, to. Yeah, we'll have to take this offline you know, at some point. I've got lots of I'm very interested give, in that. Yeah. Yes. But I also, you know, there's another part of this conversation, which again is, you know, traditionally the goal of enlightenment does involve freedom from samsara. You know, it is a transcendence from, you know, rebirth, you know. Well, that and can be debated that, to the nth degree. I mean, I don't think it can be debated in terms of traditional Buddhism. A key part of traditional Buddhism is freedom from rebirth. So then right. there's a question of... But that, that you know, idea, that back yeah. to the Pali Canon, that idea does not originate in the Pali Canon. That is very Buddhist. That is not Dharma in my mind. I mean, I would, dis I, don't, I would disagree with you. I think it is in the Pali Canon. I know Stephen makes an argument against it, but I'd say the scholarly consensus, which I would always go with, just sure, as, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. is certainly that that's a part of the early Buddhist worldview. But I think it essentially, you know, the question is quite interesting, isn't it? It's like, you know, is the possibility of complete freedom one that you're open to? You, you, you don't think there is ever a complete state of transcendence yourself? Um, you know, Maybe. I, I would never say no because I, I feel like that's too arrogant. I don't think that I'm going to get there. I'm more right. of a, tra I'm not a transcendence practitioner. I'm a transformational practitioner. I'm much more interested in transformation. And if, and when I'm done this tricky business of transformation, if that leads me to a transcendent reality or experience, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. But I think that we put the cart before the horse. And my teacher, Stephen Smith, always talked about that in the Mahasi tradition. Yes, it's transformation and then transcendence. So uh, that's kind of the, the way that I position that. But also, too, like I, maybe it's there and maybe it's not, but personally, like I reject that soteriological goal of historic Buddhism. Like, I don't want, you know, because what they're saying is it's better to not be born than to be born. Now, if I die and go to some checkout line and they say, do you want to go back and give it another shot? I would do it. I'll do this again. Like, I well, don't have a problem you know, with that. Really, so, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that itself is just such an interesting statement. You know, like, I'm like, I need to use that as a quote in, you know, one of my future books because it is a different orientation, right? Completely. So, you know, there's a classical orientation or a traditional or the, the labels are, you know, a bit insufficient. But there's certainly a goal in Buddhism. The common goal is to, you know, be free from samsara. But you're saying, actually, I'm not interested in that. I'd rather come back and kind of, you know, have have another experience you totally. know, on like I, you know if that's the case like i and i also feel like as an autonomous person i'm i can reject any of these ideas like i'm not i think buying any religious or any system about hook line and sinker is kind of a bad move so like part of it is like that's one thing i like about secularity as well is like we don't have to agree you know like i am a very dedicated dharma practitioner are there things within a tradition that i reject yeah there are and that's okay that's okay i think that's healthy yeah, I think it is healthy, definitely. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, as a as a woman, as a cisgender, I identify as a cisgender woman. You know, there's a lot of misogyny in Buddhism that yeah. I certainly reject. So I think in terms of secular kind of um, Buddhism, just, you know, because or secular Dharma, I think that what we have to ask ourselves just as ethical beings, you know, you obviously are an ethical being. And you obviously, like me, we really care about harm. We don't want to, we don't want harm for ourselves and we don't want harm for others. So I think the question is, you know, if I reject a belief in, you know, 
might that harm someone else? Right. So I think with the secular Buddhism that the argument is that if one if one rejects, I'm not saying you shouldn't reject this, but if one rejects, you know, the goal of liberation, um, we have to be careful that that rejection doesn't lead to harm for Buddhists who accept that goal, right? right. So in a way, it's like, so for example, we wouldn't want to go to having that belief makes you less developed than me. Because then that leads to like an ethnocentrism. Oh, no, it's true. Other but maybe there, why right. can't there be multiple goals? Why does everybody have to have the same goal? I mean, I'm, I'm, you, you know, you're preaching to the choir. I'm a total <laughs> pluralist by heart. I'm like a total. Yeah. But I think it's the issue of like, how do we have multiplicity? And that doesn't lead to harm for others. I mean, that's yeah. the challenge of, you know, like, you know, that's one of the kind of ch challenges of the present moment, right? No, that's true. How, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes we don't realize that sometimes our rejection of something can have real life consequences for other communities, you know. So I think in a way that's, you know, what what I'd like your audience to think about if they also identify as secular Buddhists or secular Dharma people, just to think about ways they can do secularity that's not going to be harmful for non-secular Buddhists, you know. I mean, I think that's a, a, one of the primary goals of the project is, is oh, to not brilliant. do that. It's to yeah. not, you know, it's to not, it, it, it's to not have a value judgment of like, you know, like, you know, it, it, it's differences. And part of it for me is I feel rooted in, in a tradition, uh, but I don't want to be stuck in the tradition. Yeah. Well, I think we, you know, most people across, you know, across line, across, you know, but geographical borders have ambivalent contradictory relationships to their tradition you know growing up catholic you know in you know around you know very traditional catholic yeah, sure. you know strong irish catholic uh community in liverpool but most of the like catholic women certainly i knew didn't like buy the whole traditional p position sure, on women that's right. So, I mean, we do, I think most of us have these complex relations to tradition. And, you know, that, you know, varies, you know, we come to Buddhism as non-natal Buddhists. Neither of us were born totally. into a Buddhist family. So I think that also positions us in a certain way. Yeah, not even close Buddhism. for me, you know, like, yeah. I, <laughs> same with you, right? Like, the fact that I ended up doing this practice makes zero sense. Yeah, no, I, I often think that, I mean, I just, my life, I'm like, I'm from like working class Catholic Liverpool family and I'm like a professor in America of Buddhism. Yeah, you make zero like, it makes sense. makes no sense. Which makes which me actually, trust you more. <laughs> well, it actually makes me think about karma and yeah. like like bigger forces than my human will. Totally. But like you, I, well, I'm probably more open to, I'm not a materialist. I'm kind of open to, you know, the mystery. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I think, you know, humility is for me is, you know, just the only possible response to learning about the multiplicity of religious and cultural worlds. Like there's so many different frameworks, you know? It's so, it's so good. I, I'm obsessed with all this stuff, clearly. And so it, it's <laughs> like, I always like to have a, a new and interesting conversation. I know, I know we have a few minutes left. Is there yeah. anything, um, what do you, what do you, uh, you mentioned some of it, but what do you, what are you working on now? What are you excited? What's coming up for you that you're excited about? 
Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm excited about the project I'm working on because it's super kind of traumatic, painful, sensitive mm -hmm. issue. But I'm working on a book on sexual abuse and misconduct in contemporary Buddhism, uh, North American, but also transnational communities. And I'm working on this with Amy Langenberg. She's a specialist in the Pali Canon, actually. So you'd really nice. like Amy. She knows, you know, she's a Vinaya specialist. Um, but as you know, you know, abuses of power, sexual and, you know, financial and just power, you know, have really devastated so many Buddhist communities. Tell me about it. You know, and I know that one close to your own heart. Um, but so I think, you know, this is so it, it's been a really hard project. I've like I lost bet. sleep. You know, it's it's really painful. But we are hoping that our book, it's an academic book, but we're writing it accessibly. You know, we do hope it's going to be of help, you know, to Buddhist communities, because, you know, talking about dukkha suffering, masses of suffering come from these, you know, abuse crises. So we hope that our book will help, you know, communities, you know, who are dealing, who've dealt, had to deal with these crises. And we hope it will help communities not have these crises. So I'm excited in that sense. I do think it will be a good contribution towards ending suffering for different, you know, people. Yeah. And that well, always inspires me, you know. And when, when does that come out? That probably books take forever to come out. Is that yeah, like a year? Forever. So, yeah, the first draft is due at the end of the year to Yale. But then, you know, there's a review process. Oh, we get sure. feedback. And so it probably won't be out, unfortunately, for a couple of years. But wow. maybe you can invite us back and we can do a I will. I certainly it. will. And, and is there another project post that one? Or are you still knee deep in that one? Well, I'm actually, yeah, no, I there is another project. I'm always doing multiple projects. So right, actually, I've just, I'm working, I'm going to be doing a book on Buddhist ethics. Nice. With a British scholar called Paul Fuller. He wrote a great book on engaged Buddhism. Yeah. So it's going to be an edited collection. We're going to, you know, invite about 25 scholars to write on different topics you know like and i think what we really want is we want scholars who can give an historic background to say this is historically how buddhists have thought about say abortion or you know ai artificial intelligence sure. but this is like how we might think about buddhist ethics in a contemporary context that's so awesome. that'll be i think a fun project a, a broad project to learn from um, I like working with people, so I'm excited to work with I got, I got a question for you because you mentioned Rupert yeah. in Bristol, a person who yeah. I think would be very helpful for you. Do you know John Peacock? I, I know of John Peacock's work, but I've actually never met him, but he's also I, British, right? He's British. He actually knows Rupert. He taught at Bristol for years. And yeah, he, he's he completely, I think he's working on a book on Buddhist ethics. And he's a, he's my poly canon go-to. He's actually going to, his interview <laughs> comes out in a couple, in a couple weeks. But if you want, I can put you in touch with him. He, he would be very, he's, this is kind of his whole thing. And he, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm surprised you never ran into him at Bristol. Maybe you were out before he came in. Yeah, either I was out or he came. Probably I was out before. He, I left in like 95. Okay. And I've been out of, living outside of England for 30 years. Sure. Like I was living in Asia before I came to the US. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I'd love that. And that's, you know, I think it's just great to do this network and across practice communities. You know, you're a teacher of Dharma. I got that yeah. right? There you right. go. That's there you go. Got that. You're learning. Yeah. yeah I, I have to train everybody. It's really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but like you're you're talking to academics, right? And I think oh, that's all really the time. interesting, right? There's this fluidity between scholars and practitioners, which I also talk about in American Dharma. 
Yeah, and I think that's an important. I think that's been an important addition to the dialogue is like really learning, because you know, learning where the stuff comes from rather than just regurgitating what the teacher before you said. And I think it's important. I think people could just do a little bit more, you know, a little bit more nose to the grindstone with some of this stuff than just regurgitating what's been said before. Yeah, and I mean, academic Buddhism like can seem a bit sometimes intimidating or boring for non-academics, but. There's a lot of duels. There's a lot of duels in the academic study of Buddhism. And I think if, you know, if your listeners are like, oh, I don't want to read an academic book, there are a lot of academic Buddhist podcasts. Uh, so, you know, that's another way to get the like essence, talking yep. about essences of, yeah. of, you know, of scholars' work. So, yeah, no, I think it's really helpful. You know, I'm, I'm obviously dedicated my life to academia. There's yeah, lots of no things doubt. wrong with it. But, you know, it's, I think education, especially now, is really important. Yeah. Well, I really, I feel like we could go on and on, but I know our time's up. It's really great to see you again, Anne. I always appreciate your mind on this stuff. Oh, I really appreciate you, Dave. Thanks for the, you know, thanks for the invite and the convo.